Area 941 podcast are produced and distributed by Community Powered 94.1 KPFA Radio. Please help support Area 941 at kpfa.org. This is the Area 941 Radio Walensky Podcast. I'm your host, Richard Walensky. We're talking about books, about theater, about film, and sometimes about politics. My guest is Dom Winslow, whose latest novel is City on Fire, the first of a trilogy, which will be the last books that Dom Winslow has said he will write. Earlier novels recently include Broken, The Border, The Force, The Cartel, which I interviewed Don Winslow for, also The Kings of Cool, which was the first interview I did, Savages. There are 21 novels in all dating back to 1991. Don Winslow, we'll be talking about your new book, Sitting on Fire, and then we're going to talk about what you're doing online and the politics behind it. I read a recent interview at Rolling Stone, and that brought up a whole lot of questions, so we will get to that. But first, let's talk about City on Fire. There's an introduction to the book which talks about its relation to the Iliad Mm -hmm. and the Aeneid, Mm -hmm. and maybe even the Odyssey. And you mentioned that this is something that goes way back, the idea of doing that. So let's zero in. Was there any particular thing that said now is the time, or was it just the fact that you were stuck at home with the pandemic? No. You know, I'd been busy writing other books. I I wrote the first sentence of this book. And then, you know, in the interim, I was doing other things. I was writing this big drug trilogy. I did a book called The Force, just all, you know, all kinds of books. And so I, I didn't really make room for this book. The other issue was, it's the first book I've done that's set in my hometown. And, and homecomings, I think, are always difficult. Your hometown, they talk about Dogtown. What is the hometown? The hometown is actually South Kingstown, Rhode Island, on the southern shore of Rhode Island, but otherwise known as Matunic Beach, Narragansett, that, that area. You know, fishing villages and beaches, really, where I grew up. And we had gone back there, we being my wife and I, to, to help take care of my mother. So we were there for longer and longer periods, and I, I just started to fall in love with it again as a locale. And so now we live there half the year. So that stimulated me. After I'd finished those other books, I thought, okay, now I'll, I'll go do this. I did The Force, and then I did a book called The Border, which wrapped up that drug trilogy. And then I did a volume of novellas called Broken, and then I came to this. And when you came to this, you figured this is this is about time. Did you go back and begin to examine the Iliad and the Aeneid oh. again at that point? Oh, very much, very much, very intently. You know, I read different translations. I read uh, a lot of, uh, you know, scholarly works about those books. I listened to college-level lectures about them. So, yeah, so I really immersed myself. In reading one review, it mentioned the Patriarcha family, and I know nothing about them. And somewhere else, you said that what triggered it was that there actually was an instance of one guy on one side of a gang touching the breasts of a woman who was with 
yes. one of the other members. Yeah, yeah. It was a real incident and uh, happened when I was sort of a kid. Uh, and so when I was reading the Iliad, it reminded me very much of that, you know, the precipitating incident being Helen of Troy. That struck me as a very, you know, as a parallel. Uh, and that's what gave me the idea to do this book. What year did that incident happen? I don't remember exactly. I want to say it was the late 60s, early 70s. And you said it in 1987, and according to an interview with Rolling Stone, the reason which the interviewer figured out and which I figured out is because there were no cell phones. <laughs> well, that wasn't the reason. That was that was convenient. You know, that works out nicely. But no, the real reason is twofold. One is that that was the era when the mobs were going into their steep decline and the RICO acts were really ripping them up and everyone was turning rat. And I wanted that kind of atmosphere. I wanted an atmosphere, you know, where people are fighting over less, you know, fighting over slices of a lesser pie. And so they fight all the more viciously. The other reason is I knew I was going to write two more books with this character, Danny Ryan. And I knew where I wanted to take him, and I kind of backlogged it. So I knew where I wanted him to end up in what era, and then, you know, went backwards from there. One other question, then we'll talk specifically about the characters. As you were talking, it reminded me a little of The Sopranos, which takes place kind of on the side in New Jersey, yeah. where the main mob action is going on in New York. Yeah, Listen, I mean, Rhode Island was had a very, very serious mob presence, extremely powerful. You alluded to the Patriarcha uh, family, and they were around, you know, when I was growing up. But I, I picked Rhode Island for two reasons. One, because I'm from there, and so it was familiar, and I could write about it. But two, the organized crime there, while powerful, is very small. Rhode Island's a very, well, the smallest state. Right, sure. And so everybody knows each other, and that was essential for the plotting of this book. Yeah, intimate relationships. So you're you're trying to do two different things in a sense. One is taking the story of the Trojan War and its aftermath and imprinting it on a gang story, but at the same time, you've also got the real story and the history, which means you want to keep that sort a little bit accurate. Yeah. So was there a gang war in the eighties? There have been various gang wars through all the time. The, the really big ones were in the 60s and early 70s. Again, it's a work of fiction. Right. Right. And so I, you know, I, I took the fiction writer's, you know, right to, to sort of shift things and move things around. I tried to do, actually, when I was reading the book, I did not have my laptop with me. Okay. I had my iPad, yeah. but I decided I'm just going to read the novel as a novel. Yeah. But then afterward, I went back and tried to find the points where the story of the Iliad and the Aeneid match mm -hmm. City on Fire. Yeah. First of all, we've got Danny Ryan. He's Aeneas, right? Absolutely. I mean, Aeneas was a fairly minor player in the Iliad, which is one reason that I chose. You know, it would have been easier to have told the story from the center, you know, from Hector's viewpoint or Achilles' point of view, which we do a little bit in the book. But I was interested in Danny because he's an outsider. You know, he marries into the family, as Aeneas was an outsider. Aeneas was a, a tribe allied with Troy, not necessarily a Trojan, and certainly not part of the Trojan royal family. And so I, I liked having that outsider's perspective. I guess you could have chosen, I mean, the, the other people you named die during the, uh, right. during the Trojan War. I guess in that 
where you could have chosen Odysseus. Odysseus is a character named Chris Palumbo. Yeah, I know that. Three books. <laughs> yeah, that uh, That's pretty obvious. And we'll be following him through Odysseus's voyages and his return home over the next two books. When I was putting the pieces together, there's a point where someone mentions another character's Achilles heel, yes. which is kind of a dead giveaway. And at that point, I was able to kind of move outward. Yeah, I mean, every once in a while, I throw a little a little clue in there. Listen, it's important to me that people could read these books without any reference to the classics at all. You know, but if you do have a sort of a nodding acquaintance, you'll, you'll see the parallels. And if you're sort of a classics freak, you can play the game you were playing. And, and you know, every character in these books has an analogous character in the classics. Let me see if I can find my list here. Pam equals Helen, Liam, Paris, yep. Pat, Hector, yep. John Murphy, Priam, yep. Peter Moretti, Agamemnon, Pauli, Menelaus, Pasco, possibly Zeus? Close. Apollo. Okay. Apollo. Yeah. Uh, Zeus will come into to play later. <laughs> uh, but, you know, it, well, you know, I was playing the game too. For instance, Madeline McKay. That's Venus. Venus Aphrodite. How, how do you do a goddess in Providence, Rhode Island in 1987? Uh, who would Apollo be? Pasco Ferry. And, and there's a scene in the book where, you know, uh, Pasco molests the character Cassie, Cassandra Murphy, which, you know, when you when you delve into mythology, when you try to find the backstories of these people and gods that are in these books, that was a, a story. I mean, Apollo raped Cassandra and in exchange gave her the gift of prophecy, which is the role that Cassandra plays in this book. You know, she's the one who can kind of see around the corners and is saying, guys, don't do this. Don't, you know, she tries to stop Danny from his sort of fatal sin. That key moment, the Trojan horse moment, had to have been very difficult because how do you get somebody who's smart to do something that stupid? Right, right. It was tough. First of all, I had to find a, a contemporary analogy for, for the Trojan horse. You obviously can't bring a big wooden horse full of Italian mobsters into Providence in 1987. So what would the, what would the equivalent be? What would tempt somebody? And it's a big load of heroin. Now, it's only coincidental that heroin in those days on the East Coast was also known as horse. That brings up a question that I ask a lot of writers and get weird answers is, what role does serendipity like that play in a book like this or even in The Force or the other books? Uh, you know, <laughs> that's a good question. I, I, I try to avoid serendipity, you know, coincidence and, and all of that kind of thing because I think the reader maybe feels a little cheated, you know. Uh, in this, I felt it was realistic because really – a lot of what destroyed the mob, in addition to the RICO acts, was their involvement in the heroin trade because the the sentences were so high. You know, if you got caught um, dealing, dealing age, you know, it's 30 to life. And that's a big incentive to cooperate, right? Which is also, I mean, that happened in The Sopranos from a big pussy got caught pushing age. And that was his motivation for, for betraying, you know, Tony and the rest. So in that way, I didn't feel it was coincidental. And also around those years, that, that was what was happening. The, the mob was increasingly 
looking at the profits that other people were making from heroin and decided to get into it. There is a black gang that appears in the book, and I have not done enough research. Who are they? There is a character in the Iliad named Memnon. I don't think many people know this, and, and it came as a bit of a surprise to me. There was an Ethiopian group that came to Troy to help the Trojans. Really? Yes, and led by uh, their king, Memnon, who was, in fact, killed by Achilles. And so, uh, again, what are you going for? You're going for the contemporary equivalency, you know? And so I introduced the the black gang. And there is, of course, an area in Providence, which is predominantly African-American. Well, there is the mention of Achilles' heel and trying to find the parallel there and... I guess you relied on Achilles' relationship. Absolutely. Achilles' heel in this case is his bisexuality or really his homosexuality, I think, predominantly. Reading the Iliad, you know, seriously, when you look at the relationship between Achilles and Patroclus and you looked at the the ancient Grecian attitude toward homosexuality, it was very tolerated among young men, not tolerated, of course, by the modern mafia which then becomes his Achilles heel. So it kind of jumped out at you. I got most of what I got. What else was there? Is there any other kind of hidden place in the Iliad or Aeneid that you remember (laughs) that you kind of use? Mind you, I wrote this book three years ago, right? I've written the other two since. I mean, it's the Iliad, it's the Odyssey, it's the Aeneid. Yes, okay. We always think that the Iliad tells us the whole story of the Trojan War. It doesn't. It ends at Achilles' death. It starts in the middle of things and it ends in the middle of things. The Trojan horse story comes from Aeneas when he's in Carthage talking to Dido, who he falls in love with, the tragic queen of Carthage. And she asks him to tell her about his life. And he says, sorrow, unspeakable sorrow, you asked me to bring to life once more my queen, which I found to be such a poignant line. You know, here's this guy who's lost his wife, his home, his business, everything. He's on the run, fleeing with an elderly father and, and you know, an infant baby. And that was one of the big inspirations for writing these books and, and making Danny the character because he struck me as such a, a poignant character. Yeah. And that's, that's Virgil you're talking. Yeah, it's Virgil. Yeah, but now we're into Latin. You know, it's Virgil who's writing the, the founding myth of Rome. So all three books have been written. Mm-hmm. You're not planning to write any more, at least not. at the moment. I am not planning to write any more full stop. Which we will get into, okay. but a, a little bit more about this. When you're developing the story... What kind of roadblocks, other than the ones we've discussed, did you hit where you're kind of going, this is going to be really, really hard to continue unless I find that little root through that problem? Yeah. In books two and three, there were a number of those. For instance, in the Aeneid, Aeneas washes up on the shores of Carthage, as we just discussed. He goes into a cave. And he sees uh, a mural painted on the cave walls of the Trojan Wars. Sees himself. What's the modern equivalent of that? Seeing something on TV. TV or a movie. And so book two goes to Hollywood. 
where where Danny's on the set. I won't describe why. Watching an actor playing him, falling in love with the actress who plays Pam, the Helen of Troy character, sees his old neighborhood rebuilt on the set. <laughs> Hears dialogue that might have been spoken by Liam and Pat and you know and Big John Murphy. So you know that was one of those. Going into book three, you kind of late in the Aeneid when he goes to Rome to create Rome. Well, what's the equivalent of building an empire? Well, I kept going back. What is that going to be? You know, well, it's it's a casino empire in Las Vegas, building these big mega casinos as they did in the 1990s. What it is in the Aeneid is that he he wants to marry Lavinia, the local princess, who's been promised to somebody else. Uh, for dynastic purposes, what would the equivalent of that be? You know, hard to say, right? So instead of it, it would be stupid if that were a woman. It just doesn't work. So I made it a casino property that that Danny and his rival in book three each want to buy from this old man to to blow it up and build a mega casino on that site on the strip. So the Lavinia, Lavinia instead of becoming a princess, becomes the name of an old casino. And where does Chris fit into this, the Odysseus character? Because he's having his own adventures, and then you have to kind of find the equivalents of what well, we know, Circe yeah, and all of and Calypso, Calypso and Circe and all of that. Yeah, I don't want to listen. I don't want to give too much away, but we definitely follow through the next two books, Chris's wanderings and his love affairs and his eventual return home. It's work, but it sounds like also like a lot of fun. A lot of fun. Uh, I had a blast writing these books. To play with these great works, at the same time to be working in kind of the realm of memory, in a kind of gritty crime story with this character that evolves over the years, Danny, you know, as he leaves and tries to leave his past behind, but, you know, as they say, objects in the rearview mirror may be closer than they right. appear. Uh, yeah, it was a lot of fun. This happened during... Well, three years, so we're two years and one year before that, during before the pandemic. How did you separate out the political material going in your brain, in all of our brains, regarding Trump, regarding the pandemic, regarding what the GOP has become? How do you deal with that in the book? Do you just kind of put it aside and say, I am yeah. not doing it? Well, you have to because the book the books run from roughly, well, yeah. you know, yeah. So none of that exists in these books. And so, you know, mentally, it's just a matter of compartmentalization, I think is a <laughs> word. You know, it's, it's, it's sort of a mental discipline. Are there any places in there where your own politics, you think, kind of seeps in? Into these three books? Yeah. I don't think so. The scenes in the uh, in the bar was that bar in your memory mm -hmm. where was that oh uh, there were two of them one in providence and one on the shore and and i guess the feeling you had is the same feeling danny had down by the beach yeah absolutely i'm on that beach you know we live there now about six months of the year i'm on the beach virtually every day how did you organize the three books it was very easy because looking at Aeneas's life, it fell into three distinct phases, the first two of which ended with the question, what next? And so that was that was very simple. You know, you knew the first was going to be the Trojan War. The second was going to be his wanderings. 
which, you know, I ended up putting in Hollywood and the, and the third was going to be his building an empire. So that the organization was very simple. Now, the the maneuvering around the various characters, we would we'll go visit Chris. We go visit Peter Moretti, who comes to a bad end. We visit Peter Moretti's son, who, you know, murders his mother and, and her lover and a trial for that. So you're you're moving into the Greek playwrights now. Moving very seriously into Aeschylus, absolutely, into the Oresteia, which is a noir novel, if you think about it. Play one, guy comes home from the war, wife has a lover, they murder him in the bathtub. Play two, son comes home, hears from his sister that his mother killed his father, and he kills them both. Play three, some rabid prosecutors track him down relentlessly and bring him back to what was actually the first trial in in literature. First trial, see, that's a noir novel. How and can it leave that alone? At what point did you recognize that? Was that part of that early process? Yeah, very much. You know, I was, I was reading through the classics and in a kind of an organized fashion, and so I hit Aeschylus, you know, his plays, the Orestes trilogy, Agamemnon, the Libation Bearers, and I forget the, the other one. Yeah, reading it, and I go, yeah, these are also modern modern stories. Did you take anything from Shakespeare? No, uh, I did not. Although, you know, Shakespeare's been a huge influence on me and made my living for a number of years directing Shakespeare, but not for these. These, I, I stuck very much to the to those source materials. What is your experience with Hollywood over the years? Varied. Listen, everything I've ever written has been either purchased or optioned for the films or television. Not much of it's been made yet, but there's a lot in the process now. Have you been on the sets? Mm-hmm. A couple of times. I, I don't go for very long, you know, because really there's nothing for a novelist to do on a film except be in the way. You know, a lot of times they'll show me scripts. I'll give them notes on the scripts. A lot of times they they want to go to locations, and I'll take them to locations and say, yeah, in my mind this is where this happened, this is where this happened, and they either use it or they don't. Have you thought about uh, screenwriting? Or I have. I did. I wrote uh, the screenplay for a book of mine called Savages, which Oliver Stone made. Well, that's right, yeah. Yeah. No, but not not so much. I, I think other people are better at it. Uh, you said you directed plays on stage. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Uh, Oxford in England for actually high school students, international high school students spending time at Oxford in the summers. I've directed a lot of plays over the years in various places. How does that directing a play, how does that influence your writing? Does it influence you? I think it does. I think that when you deal with the spoken word out loud, I think it helps train your ear. It gives you an idea of sort of the muscularity of words. And I think it's very helpful. Yeah. Don Winslow, let's talk a little bit about your work on Twitter and your videos. I understand that the reason you began doing all the political work was the insurrection, but it must have gone before that. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. I started on Twitter, you know, very shortly after the election in 16. You know, prior to that, though, I'd taken out like a full-page ad in the Washington Post advocating an end to the war on drugs, another one in the New York Times involving criminal sentencing reforms. But really the Twitter stuff I started quite seriously around the, the election of, of the former president. And the videos? The videos I produce, you know, in conjunction with, with Shane Salerno, my partner and agent and friend, who's a filmmaker, around that same time, yeah. What kind of response have you gotten? 
amazing. I'm shocked. You know, we've had 250 million views. Yeah, I know, of the videos. We did one, for instance, for Pennsylvania shortly before the presidential election because we knew that would be a critical state. And that got 10 million views. Similarly, one we did in Georgia, one we did for Michigan. So the, the response has been amazing. Do you feel you're speaking to people who already know what you're talking about? Yeah, in some sense, yes. Well, let me refine that. I mean, I, I think there's value in encouraging people who think roughly the same as you do to inform them, to encourage them, to get them stirred up, to motivate them to vote, to donate to candidates, to be active. So I think that there's considerable utility in that. Uh, but also, I, I think that we spoke to the undecided voters, you know, particularly in those states that I mentioned. We're very, very much targeted toward undecided voters in those areas, and, and we're told that it, that it made a difference. What about Elon Musk? on Twitter. Well, I'm not thrilled about it, but uh, I'm encouraging people to stay on Twitter, you know, because that's where the battlefield is right now, and you have to fight the battle where the battlefield is. How do you think Ukraine plays into the message that we need to make sure that Trump stays out? Well, you're looking at two very similar people in Vladimir Putin and Donald Trump, although Donald Trump has a crush on Vladimir Putin. It's fairly creepy and obnoxious. I, I think it's about autocracy, isn't it? It's, it's, about, it's about freedom versus tyranny. It's about democracy versus dictatorship. There seems to be in, in some parts of the world, including the United States, this drive toward the strongman, you know, kind of government, a, a strive toward, I don't think it's, it's exaggerated to call it fascism. We see it in Hungary, we see it in Russia, we saw it with Trump, you know, we see it with Marie Le Pen in France. So uh, they're, they're all of a piece, aren't they? The Ukrainians are in a literal battle, you know, with, with their lives and their blood and, and defending democracy. So I have a uh, Facebook friend who is African-American who wrote the other day, I wouldn't have voted in France in the uh, runoff because his leftist candidate wasn't there. How do you respond? How do you get people who say, hey, my my leftist whatever? Well, yeah, we went through that with Bernie, didn't we? Yeah. That very well might have put Trump in the White House. Uh, well, how do I respond is, is look, you, if you're looking at a binary choice, right, to me it's an easy decision between a Trump and a, a you know, Hillary Clinton or, or Trump and certainly Joe Biden. You know, you, you have to put your your first choice aside when you're presented with it's either this guy or it's this guy. So if you want to go pout that your guy is not in that race, okay, but now you're putting in a choice that you're going to hate a lot more than the other choice. Well, I always it's silly. I always kind of look at it as it's always on some level going to be the lesser of two evils. Yeah. And in this case, the distinction is huge, as it was in 2000. Mm -hmm. And as it turned out, everything stemmed from what happened in 2000, right. starting with 9-11, continuing to Iraq and Afghanistan. Yeah, no, absolutely. Yeah, you know, I, I had very little patience with the, the Bernie guys, you know, who, who sat that out. Uh, the other question, I guess, concerns 
something I see a lot whenever I see, say, people in our bubble come across people in the other bubble is they immediately change the conversation. You mentioned Trump. They mentioned Hunter Biden. Yeah, it's it's always the, the what about conversation. It's a way of escaping accountability. Now, I, I don't know that much about Hunter Biden. It apparently has some skeletons in that closet. I'll tell you what some of those skeletons were not. They were not an attempted armed overthrow of the American government. How do you look at the thugs you write about in the mob or, you know, in the narcotics mobs versus the thugs in the Republican Party? Well, they have a lot of similarities, don't they? I mean, Trump sort of models himself after a mob boss. Now, I hasten to add that, you know, the Trump family are not the Corleones. They're more the gang that couldn't shoot straight. Right. I've said it before. I don't know how you have two sons and both of them are Fredo. All of them are Fredo. You know, but it's the same mentality. It's it's that mentality of I have a right to do whatever I want and get away with it. Don Winslow, you say you're not going to write anymore. Right. Why? Because I I think it's time to take my energies into this fight. How do you plan to do that? Well, by continuing to do what I've been doing and what Shane and I have been doing and, and expand it. Well, what about the role of art in getting people to change their minds? I think it's considerable, but I think I've contributed on that level as much as I have to contribute. I think that I, you know, in the three drug books, I hope I got people to take a, a different kind of look at that situation, at immigration, at addiction. And so I, I think I've taken the, the fiction kind of world about that about as far as I can. The Washington Post review of City on Fire uh-huh. said you were at the top of your game. Oh, is that right? Yeah. Yeah. And <laughs> I kind of feel the same way. And well, I'm kind you. of feeling sad that I've only got two more books um, and you're still a relatively young man. <laughs> <laughs> I I've, Listen, I feel a little sad, too. This was not an easy decision to come to. If the Washington Post said I was at the top of my game, though, I guess I'd rather go out at the top of my game. What is the titles of the next book? City of Dreams and City in Ruins. And what would you call the trilogy? The City Trilogy, I think, is what people have already started to call it. I would probably call it the Danny Ryan Trilogy, but I've heard people call it the City Trilogy. How would you feel about it becoming a miniseries? Well, it's been sold as a feature film. This book? Yes. So it would be part of a trilogy? All three books. Do you plan to work on the screenplay? No, not at all. Not at all. So you're just doing it and... Listen, I I imagine they'll show me the scripts and they'll probably want to talk to me and same kind of thing. I'll take them around to, you know, say this is here and that's there and this is what I had in mind. So moving on to what you're going to be doing, which are more of these videos, do you have any lined up that are have not yet hit Twitter? Not at the moment. How optimistic are you that we can muddle through this i don't think that that optimism is relevant for the following reason what's the alternative if you're going to be pessimistic what are you supposed to do lie down die give up watch the country go down the chute so whether i'm optimistic or not whether anyone's optimistic or not we need to be in the fight and we need to keep doing what we're doing you put one foot after the other and just keep our fingers crossed that we could 
Well, I think we need to do more than keep our fingers crossed. I don't think we can close our eyes and, and cross our fingers. I, th I think to torture the metaphor, we need to use those hands constructively. You've been listening to an interview with Don Winslow, whose latest novel is Sitting on Fire. Don Winslow can also be found, obviously, on Twitter. Special thanks to Elaine Petricelli and Book Passage, where this interview was recorded. Feedback on this and other Radio Walensky podcasts is appreciated. You can write to bookwaves at hotmail.com and feel free to search out other interviews at bookwaves.com or on the kpfa.org website. Until next time, I'm Richard Walensky on the Area 941 Radio Walensky Podcast. <laughs>